Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Bernie Rankin is a former detective inspector with Victoria Police with 42 years under his belt. Bernie worked in inner city CIBs, the breakers and major crime squads and the homicide and armed robbery squads before heading to the Solomon Islands with the AFP. He headed up the major collision investigation unit before training other detectives about the art of investigative interviewing. Bernie worked on some of the biggest jobs, the bombings of the Russell Street headquarters and the Turkish consulate, to name a few. Bernie's also dealt with the most infamous crooks, including Mick Gatto, Graham the Munster Kinneborough and Mr Rent-A-Kill, Christopher Dale Flannery. Hi Bernie and welcome to The Crime Couch. Thank you, Rochelle, for that kind opening. It's my pleasure. Tell me, why did you become a cop? Rochelle, I bombed out of university, worked uh, at Ansett's, uh, the old airline company, for a little while, and um, a cousin joined the police force, and um, I sort of thought that was looks like an interesting job. So I joined on April Fool's Day 1974, um, started out at the academy out of Glen Waverley. First stop really after that was some Kilda Uniform Station, where I worked for quite a few years learning my craft before I went to the CIB. It's interesting that you joined on April Fool's Day. That's quirky. Any relevance in that? No, it was just a great date, great way to remember the date that I joined Victoria Police. It was sort of significant. And we all, as a group of young police officers, we all had a bit of a laugh about it on our first day. So, Bernie, what led you to becoming a detective? Well, working at St Kilda... In the 70s, uh, it was a really uh, a good introduction to crime. Uh, it was a very busy police station, had nightclubs. The only place in Melbourne, really, that had a lot of nightlife that used to go on until all hours of the morning. We had uh, street prostitution. We virtually saw the commencement of street drug dealing, heroin trafficking, uh, particularly in Fitzroy Street. And it was a police station that attracted police men as they were in those days. It was a station just full of men. There were no women attached to Sakula when I first went down there. And uh, it was a place that attracted police officers who wanted to go to the CIB because there was a lot of crime work you could do down there, just working the Dibby band. Um, you know, we made some amazing arrests down there just doing a morning shift on the van. Uh, I remember one Saturday morning, I was working with uh, two guys, Neil Marriott and Brian Ankervis, and we arrested a drug dealer from Sydney, and um, it was the biggest drug pinch in Victoria for that year. And the drug squad couldn't believe it. A couple of young blokes work in the divvy van, and they've rounded up a serious heroin, heroin trafficker. That's the sort of place it was. It was just full on. And you never stopped working. It was a very busy place to work. Sound like... Exactly the sort of place where you cut your teeth as a copper. Exactly. And, of course, what happened down there, the, the place was led by a senior sergeant, Bert Gordon was his name, a champion 
one of the best leaders I ever saw in Victoria Police. And he ran a very good police station and uh, it was, uh, was run the right way. It was just a, a great place, there were great sergeants there. A lot of them had come from the crime squads. So they were, they were very experienced and they used to lead from the front. They'd be out working with you side by side, showing you the ropes. It was just a great place to learn. In the early 1980s, Bernie, you joined the legendary Breakers Squad where you investigated large burglaries and safe break-ins. Why did the Breakers have such a reputation? Well, it was one of the original uh, specialist crime squads formed in Victoria Police. The Breakers were formed in, I think it was 1949, about the same time as the Homicide Squad was formed. And there was also the Consorting Squad, which was formed about the same time. So those three squads were sort of the original specialised crime squads. And a lot of um, legends of Victoria Police had actually had actually worked in the Breaking Squad uh, over the years. And it was just a place where it was regarded, like the other specialist squads at the time, it was regarded as a privilege to be able to work there um, because they did deal with, uh, those specialised squads deal, did deal with, you know, the main... Uh, protagonists the crime that we have here in Melbourne and Victoria and, of course, interstate. Bernie, when you were dealing with safe breakers, you must have formed some theories about them. Does it take a lot of smarts to be a really good safe breaker? In my experience, the safe breakers were the most cunning crooks that I dealt with. Um, they had a deep they had really good knowledge of how safes are manufactured, so they knew exactly where to attack them with the oxyacetylene equipment. And, of course, in those days, people used to keep a lot of cash on premises, whether it be a restaurant, a hotel or a business premises. They all kept money in the safe in the office. Not so these days. There's no money in breaking the safes these days. But in the 60s and the 70s, it was one of the main sources of, 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 of income for good crooks. And... The safe breakers in Melbourne at the time I was in the breaking squad, they were very limited in number and you, you knew them all personally. You had that much that many dealings with them that you, you got to know them all individually. You knew where they lived, what sort of car they drove. And, of course, some of them used to, uh, you could tell by attending a job which particular crook it may have been who's done that particular safe. Uh, it was always a good starting point. I remember there was a group of crooks getting around, uh, and Mick Ghetto was one of them. Uh, they were leaving um, an ace and a king of uh, playing card on a desk or a table whenever they did a safe, and that was basically to taunt us. And what happened was is an informant told us who the offenders were that were actually leaving the, the cards for us, the uh, play cards for us, and uh, we thought, okay, we'll do some serious work on them. So we put them under surveillance and uh, it led to their downfall. Mick Gatto and another crook, Sergio Bison, they went out one night, they did the Woodlands Golf Club and uh, what happened was that they were being surve under surveillance the night before and the surveillance crew lost them. Anyway, they went down to uh, Serge Bison's place in Brighton and Mick Gatto's car was there so the surveillance crew just sat off and waited and sure enough, after... Mick and Serge had done the safe at the Woodlands Golf Club. They arrived back at Serge's house and were pounced upon by the um, by the surveillance unit, and uh, that was the end of their little um, little run. And uh, both of them went to prison. Um, I think that's one of the few tastes of prison that Mick Gatto has actually had um, in his lifetime. Mm -hmm.
fascinating stories. I love the fact that you dealt with a lot of these really tough and infamous crooks. Bernie, I'm going to give you a couple of names that I know you've worked with, and I just want you to give me top of your mind a line about them. Okay, so I'll just give you the name and then you can tell me what you think about them. Graham the Munster Kinneborough. One of the smartest crooks in the Victoria's history. A very, very cunning criminal, uh, well-connected in legal circles, um, a very, very smart operator. Mick Gatto. An interesting character, Mick. He's had a charmed life. Uh, and I sometimes wonder um, how he has managed to um, do the things he's done throughout his life uh, without seeming to uh, pay too much of a price for it. Vinnie Mendez. A very cunning little fellow. I tried to lock Vin Mendez up for about four years and never got near him. Just after I left the Major Crime Squad, he was arrested on a number of occasions and actually spent a fair bit of time in prison, but that was after I left the Breakers and the Major Crime Squad. Yeah, very good crook, Vin Mendez. Crims were different in those days. In some senses, some of the crims you dealt with were, I'd almost describe them as professional. Do you agree with that? Yeah, to a degree they were. Um, a lot of planning used to go into crime in those days. Uh, it didn't have the sophistication that criminals have now, uh, but it was a game of cat and mouse. Because the, uh, the criminals that specialised in various endeavours, whether it be breaking into safes or doing armed robberies, for example, we tended to know who they were and we tended to know who these guys are associating with. And that made it relatively um, easy to keep them under control. You might miss them a few times, but then you'd pick them up on the roundabout a year or two later. Invariably, by committing repeat crimes, eventually you have to come unstuck, and that, that is a downfall, and it's true to this day. Same rules apply. Eventually, uh, they come undone, they get caught. The Magnetic Drill Gang. Now, that's another group, that, a group of crooks that you had to deal with. What was their MO? Now, they worked out how, the Magnetic Drill Gang worked out uh, how to use a, a medical cystoscope, it was called, and they put it in, in through the lock of the safe. They would then use the cystoscope, which was looking at internal organs of people, that was what it was designed for. They'd use it then to line up the tumblers on the lock of the safe and they'd use a magnetic drill to enable them to get the, uh, to get the scope in. They'd line up the tumblers and open up the safe door. Brilliant. And they made a lot of money. Uh, they did a bank up in New South Wales. They did a jeweller shop in Melbourne. They did a bank in Melbourne. They did some enormous jobs where they got a lot of money. What brains did it take to, to think about that and to use that device? That's incredibly brilliant, isn't it? Well, you'd, you'd think that if they put their mind to private enterprise, they might have gone okay because it was a very, very smart way to get into a safe. And to my knowledge, they were the only gang in the world that really used, used that method. Now, those guys, they're nearly all dead now. Um, Kinneborough was one of them. Um, uh, 
they're either old men or dead these days, so, uh, but they did do some remarkably large burglaries. Bernie, you also worked in the Major Crime Squad after that, after your time in the CI and in St Kilda. What crimes did you investigate there? Well, the Major Crime Squad was an amalgamation of the Breaking Squad and the Consorting Squad, so we used to deal with um, large investigations that weren't dealt with by other specialist squads. So it might be a huge burglary, it might be an extortion, it might be a kidnapping. Uh, in those days, a lot of prisoners used to go over the walls of the prison, so you spent a lot of time chasing escapees around, and that was the work of the major crime squad in the time that I was there. You also had a very lucky escape in St Kilda one night with a raid on a crook. Tell us what happened with that. Yes, well, I went with another... with. Two guys I was working with, John Burke and George Haightley. Uh, George had been uh, given some information that this particular crook had a handgun at his house. Now, in those days, um, we didn't raid houses with the dexterity that we do these days. Often you just go knock on the door, walk in. Sometimes you'd take the door down by force if you thought you needed to get in a hurry. On this particular occasion, George and John Burke went to the front door, I was the rear cutoff. I was at the back of the house. Uh, George got to the back door, waved me in, everything's under control, and we went inside and um, there was something about this crook, Wayne Samuels was his name, I wouldn't turn my back on him, there was just, I just had this feeling that things weren't right in the house and I was searching his bedroom and I found some uh, uh, small caliber ammunition obviously from a handgun and I found a pistol grip it was a cool morning and the crook was sweating and I asked him to uh, take off his clothes I thought I'm going to strip search this guy uh, there's something not right here and I asked him to take off his boots we were standing at the foot of an old antique bed an old one of those old four poster beds and um, he took off his boots so I bent down picked up his boots looked in them plonked them back down the floor and as I stood up again He's got a uh, gun pointed at my head. And I said, uh, put it down, put it down, don't be stupid, don't be... I raised my voice so that uh, George Haightley and John Burke could hear that I was in a bit of bother. And they came to the bedroom door and at that stage the crook decided to kill himself and uh, just turned the gun on himself and um, shot himself in the head, died in the hospital a few hours later. But it was a... The reason why I believe I was extremely lucky is uh, his family members actually commented to a colleague of mine that they can't believe that he didn't take the copper out. Where did he pull the gun from? He obviously just had that on his on his person. I'd say he had it in his jocks. It was a very small twenty five caliber, a little antique almost firearm. It was that was sort of um, um, carried covertly. It was an old firearm. I think it was manufactured in the twenties from memory. So it was a Pretty old piece of work, but it was effective. It did kill him. So near-death experience for you and a pretty horrific sort of suicide to witness as well. Did that change the way you investigated crimes as a result of that, Bernie? i tell you what it did teach me is I never, ever, ever uh, put a crook into a car or dealt with a crook at a house without searching them. Um, and I always um, insisted people I was working with, you've got to keep control of a crook the moment you walk into a house. Um, you don't let them wander around. 
search them before you put them into a car and it was a lesson that I learned and it just stayed with me for the rest of my career. You then went back to St Kilda CI as a detective sergeant and Bernie, you were seconded to work on several major investigations, the Russell Street bombing in 1986 being one of them. What pressure was on you there to make arrests? Well, it wasn't so much pressure to make arrests, it was pressure to do the jobs properly. Um, With Russell Street, uh, we had no idea when the bomb first went off who was responsible. We had some theories, but that's all they were. And um, it wasn't until uh, some raids on Anzac Day, um, a month or so after the bombing, that it came to light uh, when Mark Wiley, one of our detective sergeants, was shot uh, by an offender. It was then that we realised, uh, through the good work of a crew in the within the task force, that had just kept up inquiring about the motor vehicle that was um, that was used to blow up Russell Street, and eventually that motor vehicle was connected uh, to the criminals that were responsible, and of course um, they were tried. Uh, two of them sentenced to enormous terms of imprisonment, and one was acquitted, uh, which was. Um, unfortunate but a jury decision but it was a very uh, it was a complex investigation uh, we did some outstanding work on that and the work we did survived challenges all the way to the high court a great crew of investigators worked on it um, it was a real team effort um, and of course the pressure is is that you're dealing with um, the death of a colleague so there's that added element to it that drives you to get the job done properly. The Turkish consulate bombing was a little bit different. That was an act of terrorism, and at that stage we hadn't seen too many acts of terrorism in Australia. We were informed after the bombing went off, uh, ASIO told us pretty quickly which group were responsible, and it was a group called the Justice Commandos for the Armenian Genocide. They were seeking uh, compensation from the Turkish government and an admission from the Turkish government of the genocide in Armenia during and after the First World War. And they'd committed attacks all around the world. Now, the significant thing about the attack on the Turkish consulate in South Yarrazis is that that was virtually the last act of terror committed uh, by um, the justice commandos for the Armenian genocide. So that demonstrates that the people we arrested uh, for that job, or the person we arrested for that job, and his uh, colleague who uh, blew himself up in the explosion uh, by accident, uh, they were obviously part of a worldwide organisation, but they weren't just a part of it. They were the drivers of it, because uh, that was virtually um, one of the last acts of terrorism committed by that group. Bernie, you then went to Frankston CIB after you, you did worked on those big jobs as the boss. What do you think makes a good criminal detective? The best investigators I ever saw were those that were thorough, um, those that were patient, and um, those that knew how to communicate with people, whether they be witnesses or crooks. I certainly don't... Uh, put myself in the category of, uh, of a great investigator, but I did have the pleasure of working with some of the smartest individuals I've ever seen. And uh, 
and the methodical way they went about their work and the um, and the way they they never give up and the way they persevere until they get to the to the end they want is just remarkable and uh, thankfully in Victoria Police to this day there's still a lot of people that are like that so Bernie finally how do you reflect on those early years of of, of your career and policing now well I I feel sorry for police uh, these days. The work that they've been asked to do uh, during the um, the last couple of years with the pandemic, um, it's been very difficult for, for police. Um, the justice system expects uh, police work to be perfect and police work can't be perfect. It's Police work is done by human beings, but police work is done with the best of intentions. And... Uh, what I observe now, uh, my former colleagues, the expectations uh, around the legal system, the expectations of what they ex- have to do, um, what detail they have to provide to the defence, it is just ludicrous. And I know it is. there are crime squad detectives and suburban divisional detectives who are spending most of their time uh, dealing with that part of the justice system rather than doing what they should be doing, which is out investigating crooks. It's become overbearing and very difficult, and it's something that Victoria Police and the legal system are going to have to address. It just can't go on like this. Agreed completely. But getting back to you, how do you reflect on your early years of policing now as you're sitting in your your sixth decade? How do you reflect on those early years now, Bernie? Well, I um, I had a, a front seat at a remarkable show. Um, I worked with brilliant people. Um, I was very fortunate to be um, Johnny on the spot when s- certain things happened. Um, I was very fortunate to uh, be able to uh, run some of the most specialised squads in Victoria Police. The dedication of the colleagues that I worked with used to astound me at times. And um, and the friendships you make last a lifetime. Well, Bernie, thank you very much for sitting with me today on the Crime Couch. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Rochelle. It's been a, an interesting half hour. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on the Crime Couch. 